0: Welcome back, everyone. Uh, today, I have with me a very dear friend as our guest. I met him at a breakfast uh, get together with another very dear friend, Ali Abdel. If you don't know Ali's work on YouTube, uh, you're uneducated, basically. Ali is uh, one of our best teachers. Many of my, of me and my friends, uh, Ali picks up topics and and just. Uh, you know, analyzes them very deeply and teaches them on YouTube. Anyway, we were having breakfast at his place and my dear new friend Hassan Kubba was uh, present. We spoke about his work, which basically is all about... Using the world in your favor. Let's just put it this way. His uh, book, uh, The Unfair Advantage, is a uh, bestseller. Uh, It was uh, named the best uh, business book, top business book of the year for 2021 in the UK. Uh, It is a... uh, hack, if you want. No, I don't know if I want to call it a hack. I want to call it a, um, an approach to really, really acknowledging your advantages in the world and using them to your favor. Very, very clever approach. Uh, Hassan is also uh, a coach to many, many business leaders, influencers, entrepreneurs. He is a speaker and he truly sees business and our world in a way that I think can help a lot of us. Hassan Quba is also interested in making everyone's life better uh, with a lot of research and work on happiness, not just productivity and entrepreneurship. So Hassan, it's been a long time actually since we've been together in the same place and I'm very grateful that you agreed that we do this uh, online instead of uh,
1: face-to-face. So how have you been, my friend? I've been very good and I'm very honored to be here. Thank you so much, Mo. I love your work, love your books. Um, it has been a while and hopefully next time we'd in person as well.
0: Yeah, I think my decision this year has been, I love London, but not in winter. So uh, <laughs> why is that? Very a- good
1: decision. <laughs> 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 I'd love to make it over to Dubai soon. Yeah. So, um, or just anywhere in the region, actually, in the Middle East is so you're, you're
0: from the region originally, Hassan?
1: Yes, I was born in Baghdad. And Baghdad, Iraq. I yeah, came to the London when I was three years old with my parents to escape the war. It was at the time it was the, I think the war had just ended, and so we got, came to London and escaped from all that terrible stuff that was happening in Iraq. Yeah, and uh, that's
0: 1991, right? Uh, was it right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's just make sure people don't think it was the George W. Bush war because no,
1: no. No, it was as as they call it in the West, the first Gulf War. The first. War, uh, but then yeah. in the Middle East, we call it the second because then there was the Iraq-Iran War. Very unfortunate time oh. for Iraq. It was. Uh, yeah. 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 So, um, so in my little, in my three years, I lived through two wars. <laughs> in Iraq.
0: <laughs> do you believe they affected you? I mean, do you remember them at all? I mean, they affected your life for having to leave and go to a, a whole new culture. But.
1: Mm-hmm. So I don't. I seem to have some. I don't know if it's a, you know, when you don't know if it's a memory or a false memory that you like superimposed mm. later because you've seen photographs or something. But I seem to have some memory of broken glass somewhere. I remember that my parents told me, I don't remember, but I just remember this image of broken glass. And we moved, we moved to Jordan. We moved and we lived in Jordan for about a few months and then went to London. So I have like a vague memory of uh, Amman, Jordan, funnily enough. And I also have just an image images of our flat in Iraq. My parents lived in, my grandfather, very common, you'll you'll build a property on the land that you own. So he built uh, a building with two flats for his sons when they got married. So that's when my father was there. So there's a vague memory there, but um, I think it hasn't affected, it's more of an indirect effect in the sense of like, what kind of attitudes and kinds of ways of looking at the world, the outlook from my parents, I think. I think that comes in. It's just inevitable for that to come from the, the that generation to you. Um, and I think I also have grown up with a lot of the Iraqi community in London. So I still have that connection. My Arabic is still good, even though. No way. I did not know. Yeah, I was listening to your interview with on AB Talks, and I was really enjoying hearing no, you in seriously? Arabic. And I can imagine yeah. mine would be similar in that it's not as rehearsed. Some of the vocabulary won't be there for me. But yeah. I, can, I can pick it up quickly because the grammar, the foundation is there. And the pronunciation and the grammar, everything is there for me. So
0: That's really interesting. I mean, it's quite funny because you and I are friends for over a year now and we never spoke Arabic. We didn't even investigate the possibility to speak Arabic. Which I, I have to admit, I mean, I say that publicly sometimes that one of the reasons why I write slightly differently than the average Western author is because Arabic as a language teaches you to debate everything. So because every word has multiple meanings and every meaning has endless numbers of words. So really everything is about context. You could have the same statement means this is a brave man or, uh, you know, this is a lion that's going to eat a prey or something like that, you know. And and I think that basically makes me think differently. And when I did that interview with uh, Anas on AB Talks, which is subtitled and everything. But when you read the subtitles in English and you listen to it in Arabic, there is, I think, a layer of further depths in the Arabic than it is in the English. It's quite interesting, actually.
1: So have you been ever
0: back to the region?
1: The region? Yes. But Iraq itself once mm. um, in 2009. End of 2009, beginning of 2010 is when I went. Mm. So it was quite a, a quiet time. It was quite a good time. And now I'm hearing quite hopeful things i think for the first time so it's quite good i'm quite happy to hear people being hopeful about Iraq. it's been a long first time. time in a long time
0: yeah it's been a very long so
1: yeah like a, and i'm planning to go this year maybe towards the end of this year october who knows i've got some intention to go there again i'd love to my parents go quite often every few years mm-hmm. um every year sometimes um but yeah the the region itself i've been to the UAE I've been to um Oman I've been to Saudi so yeah, yeah I've, I've oh and I've been to a lot of the other Levant yeah. other countries as well so <laughs> yes. yeah no I really love the Middle East it's just got a completely different vibe the Arab world it's got yeah. this nighttime culture which you just don't have in London oh, uh, yeah. it's got this buzz that it has going for it. It's just, there's something special and incredible about it, which I really love. Yeah,
0: I've, I've, done, a, I've done a series. I'm still actually uh, releasing uh, some episodes of a series that I call The Remarkable Women of the Middle East, which being here in Dubai, I, you know, it's funny when, how, how little the world knows about the region because of the CNN and Fox and BBC bias of what they show you. And, uh, you know, it is quite a very unique vibe, as you rightly said. There is a lot of love and life, and hospitality to the region that is uh, sometimes misunderstood you know what they say they say that books are written in egypt printed in uh, lebanon and read in iraq so across our middle eastern world we believe that the most educated the top thinkers are normally iraqis has that been your case with your parents
1: yeah i i've heard that phrase and i think and i and i love it and i and i see the it was especially the case let's say back in the 70s, when it was like the peak time, let's say, for Egypt and Iraq, mm. it was very much the two Arab powers in a way. Yeah, like the, um, Egypt with this huge it's population, big media, yeah. Yeah. the movies, the, the books, the incredible stuff. And Iraq was kind of, yeah, as you rightly say, known for its academic part, side. Mm. So there's, there's a very big emphasis in the whole Arab world, really, towards scholarship, towards learning, towards being an intellectual. And people outside of the region really have no idea about that. Um, yeah. And I think my my parents definitely they had a huge emphasis on education. Um, my father, one of the reasons he was able to not be drafted into the war, um, I mean, I mean, on the front line, because obviously you, you want you didn't have a choice in Saddam's time. Um, but he was able to teach at university because he was educated at a higher level. Yeah. Instead of being at the front line, so it's always something they've looked at with a huge, as a huge advantage, as a huge priority. And it's interesting that you say you have a different take. You the way you write your books, I think that's definitely true for our book as well. In the sense of particularly the philosophy, the yeah. philosophy around success really comes from a almost an Islamic and regional Arab, regional kind of view of how fate works, how success works, how luck works, how hard work plays into it. A lot of it is underpinned by that, the importance of gratitude. These are huge, huge themes in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and yesterday, I was talking to a particularly a Muslim audience. Yesterday, we, it was an event of about 50, 60 people. And so I was like, intre- like, I was able to talk even more openly about the underlying philosophy of how, you know, we're not in control of our lives. As some of the self, you know, if you read too much self-development books, which which I'm a fan of, generally, generally, I like it as a general thrust. But it can leave you with a sense of this idea of um, life is in your hands. You're in full control of your own life as if you have full agency and control, which if you just stop and think for a moment, obviously, we don't. (laughs) And and so um, there's another underlying assumption, which is that we're all starting from the same starting point, which, again, we don't. They they like to pretend that it's the hard work and you follow the strategies and the hard work and everybody can be the next Oprah Winfrey, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, whatever. Reality is it's um, no, we're not all starting from the same point. We all have different circumstances, different situations, different unfair advantages as we call them. So I think that's, I think a lot of that is from that background that I've got. Yeah,
0: I have to say it's challenging because you're very much like me. So I I was born and raised in the East, and then I lived most of my effective life, my work life and so on, education and so on in the West. And there is that massive difference. I think we both cultures approve of the fact that, yeah, we don't have much control, but then the Western way of reacting to that is, so let's exert more and more and more and more and more control. And I think the Eastern way, not just, you know, Middle Eastern, but I think Eastern in general and a bit Latin uh, way of dealing with it is accept it and flow with it and understand that sometimes those things that are out of control are actually advantages for you that, act- that work in your favor rather than resist them
1: and try to control everything. Exactly. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think that's so true. The Eastern philosophy to, you know, to oversimplify is that kind of, Go with the flow is this idea? I even heard you talk in a podcast about submission, and I was like, yeah, exactly that that way of like submission being a positive thing, not in an you know, in as a as a positive word and acceptance. I think another word for it acceptance, is acceptance. Committed acceptance. You've got teachers like Eckhart Tolle talks about it as non-resistance. It's a very fascinating concept.
0: Yeah, I, I think humans in general need to be wise. You know, there are things that you need to exert control to to make a difference, right? And there are things that you sort of almost know instinctively that regardless of how hard you try, you're not going to control them. So it's not wise to resist the mighty wheels of life if life decides to, you know, put uh, 200,000 cars in between you and your meeting, like just let go and accept. So I, I want to start from there because I love, I love the way you, you phrase your hypotheses in the book. So let's start with that definition of success so you you basically view success of course inclusive of the western view of success so you're you're a very very effective coach to some of the most well-known influencers on the internet entrepreneurs and so on but you see it as bigger than that it's it's not just let's make more money or have more
1: followers and so on exactly yeah so the subtitle of the book is you already have what it takes to succeed so it's the unfair advantage you already have. And I remember the initially the book was going to be a, quite a specific book about tech startups, mm. and and the publisher was like, no. Once they saw my updated manuscript, because I was like, this first draft is that's not the one. You'll see, you'll see what I come up with. And they're like, no, honestly, it's quite good. I was like, no, I, I need to prove you wrong. It's not good. I'll show you what's good. And then I wrote a second draft of it, and that's when they like, oh, okay, let's broaden this out. Let's 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 make it a more general book about success let's release it as a hardcover version first let's this is this is some good i was like okay good i've got that validation which i was trying to get and i knew it was it was a broader concept but i wasn't sure of this subtitle that they suggested you already have what it takes to succeed i was like hmm, is that the philosophy or are we trying to give some harsh truths and say actually there are different unfair advantages you might not have them that's okay you know and then i thought about it and i said hold on but you can define success for yourself. They've captured the absolute essence of the book. So the idea is that anybody can achieve success, but you have to define success for yourself. We can't all be crazy, self-made multi-billionaires, or be super famous, be on the cover of Time magazine, or win Nobel Peace Prizes, or something like this. We can't all do that. That's just, that's not true. People love to have a growth mindset, believe anything, and you can achieve it. But no, there's a limit to that. We call it in the book, the reality growth mindset. We love the idea of growth mindset. And if you had to choose a fixed mindset or a growth mindset, I would pick growth mindset any day. But there's also a limit. I'm never going to win the World Cup. I'm not going to score the winning goal in the World Cup. It's just not going to happen for me. And so I think the idea is that you have to define success for yourself beyond what society tells you success is, beyond the symbols of success. Something I like to remind people is that What we do as a society, as a culture, is we confuse the symbols of success or the apparent symbols of success with success itself. It's like confusing... There's this concept from... I think it's from... I've never studied neuro-linguistic programming. It's this kind of thing about like psychology and words and how words affect psychology. But I find it fascinating to learn about it. I pick it up. And one of the very core concepts of it is that the map is not the territory. Meaning Mm. that... You can't have a map that captures all the details because if you did it wouldn't be a map it would be yeah. real life <laughs> yeah it would be as yeah, big absolutely. as real life and it would be useless and so this idea that we need to model the world we need to I, I did economics at university and one of the it practically it's useless <laughs> practically I haven't done anything with economics but one thing that was useful is learning to model and learning the downsides and the assumptions and the oversimplifications you have to make to model The economy that's why they couldn't predict any recessions. they can't even it almost seems useless but this idea that words are not the thing that they point to this is also an eastern philosophy concept right the words are not the thing the thing is something else the word is just pointing to it i think i've heard some fancy they they say if i point to the moon you look at the moon you don't look at my finger that's pointing to the moon the finger is just pointing Mm -hmm. and so this idea that we get confused of symbols of success for success itself so fancy cars designer labels huge house and that's not what success is so we have to go beyond this idea of looking at symbols and under- and try to define success for ourselves and it's going to be a bit different for everybody yeah. um and we have to get in to do that we have to know ourselves we have to have that self awareness of so, what do we actually want and that's a journey. That's not something that you immediately have the answer to. It's a journey of discovery of life of what do we want? It's the most basic question. What do you want? I yeah. studied marketing. And I remember when I was younger, I used to think marketing is must be some evil thing because you're manipulating people. And then actually I started getting into marketing. and I took an online course and learned about marketing. And I started a marketing business because I realized that this is it. This is the most fascinating part of psychology is how do you persuade and motivate people? And I think that every marketing decision is an ethical dilemma so one of my mentors taught me that every single marketing decision you make is an ethical dilemma and i found that fascinating and deep because it's so true the amount of things that you can you can rile people up to want something to feel like they need something and so you have and you can always use hyperbole and exaggerate or you can always downplay it and you have to decide what the right move is because sometimes it's It's good to pipe something up because it's good for the person, whatever you're selling, you know, it doesn't need to be selling actually money, but persuading.
0: I believe marketing itself is empty of good or bad, empty of evil. It is. Uh, it's yeah. the power in general that corrupts, right? So if if I tell you I'm giving you a machine and that machine is going to enable you to convince people of whatever it is that you want, sadly, most people will will use this machine for selfish reasons, you know, or many people will, which... I call marketers in that case. But, you know, but 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 the idea is you could also market use marketing to propagate a happiness equation or to tell people about a health tip or advice that is really good for them. The tool itself is empty. The tool will work really well for everyone. It's just what you put within it. But I have to say, uh, Hassan, that, that the the biggest failure of marketing in our modern world, if you ask me, is that it convinces us that success is just one uniform mold per category. So success in business is the fancy car and the summer house, success in relationships is the tall, sleek looking, attractive partner, success in parenting is that your kids are at Harvard or like some kind of a big success university. I'm just making up examples, but the truth is, many of us are brainwashed to the point that we don't ever revisit those definitions
1: of success. Exactly. And I think I was heavily, people ask me, I was, and I got this question yesterday, it was a big Q&A, and I get this a lot as well. It's like, what made me start a business? Because I talk in the book that I'm an, I, like, I call myself an unnatural entrepreneur. Mm. You know, you read a lot of biographies of entrepreneurs, successful people, etc. And they were always buying and selling stuff and thinking of ways to make money. And that just wasn't me. And yeah. so I used to read this and think, well, maybe it's, I just don't have it in me. You know, maybe it's just not for me because I was never doing it when I was young. I'm not naturally inclined that way and I literally got into it because I decided to take an online course and just do it and I pushed through and I had a, had all these ways of getting through it because I struggled a lot but what was the inspiration for me not to just have to do that why did I take why did I decide not to just get a normal job and I mean the typical thing I did economics like I did well I did, went to a good university I could have been an investment banker or something in the city of london which is like it's like wall street for for the uk and the reality is that i think i was heavily inspired by the film fight club oh another film yeah which is about this topic of like buying stuff that you don't need with money that you don't have to impress people that you don't like that had a big imprint on me when i was young so it's a bit of a depressing film but it's a very easy film
0: My kids always recommended it for me and I I see the message behind it just find it very violent for my taste. So
1: I, I it took me like, enjoy it, but I just, I kept thinking about it. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like, it, yeah, something yeah. That I, I was like, I haven't even, I don't think I've even rewatched it because I don't enjoy it, but I just, it just stayed with me.
0: This, this, yeah. this message there. No, I mean, when I, when I watched it, I went back to my daughter. So it was past, past the time when Ali left our world. And I, and I was like, you know, I would have really liked if you had told me the story without the scenes. Right? So if you just explained it to me. Yeah, yeah but, but it's interesting that you bring it up. I I see your point. Huh? It's buying things that you want, the money that you don't have to impress people yeah. that
1: you don't even care about. Yeah. And the other one is a much more lighthearted influence. It was a film called Office Space. I don't know if you know that. I don't I don't know. It's that. famous for the scene. It's quite a low-budget film. It has Jennifer Aniston in it. It's got... Uh, it's essentially... It has a very famous scene where they beat up a printer. It's fantastic. <laughs> they, they have baseball bats. Basically, these guys are office workers and they, they hate this printer. It's a comedy film. And they take it out to the park and destroy it with, with baseball bats and kicking it. And this and it has gangster rap music playing while they destroy the <laughs> printer. The whole idea is that late 90s feeling of cubicle, white collar, nine to five rat race type of life. And Office Space and Bike Club, those two together, one very depressing, one very funny, two films, really did influence my view of, I don't want that life. I don't want that. You know, the Dilbert comics? You, you probably remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah of, yeah, of course. But that was yeah. in IT as well. So my dad yeah. was, a, was a civil engineer in Iraq, but he was always really into computers. He had computers in the 80s. My story he, of my life, decided, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he decided, to, he decided to do another master's degree in the UK in IT. And so he's database administrator for Microsoft back in the year 2000. So when we first came to London, we had no money basically, but slowly, but surely we became, I would say middle-class kind of feeling here in the UK, but it's that life. And I remember one issue was that he couldn't get into the management type of roles because of number one language. He had a strong Arabic accent, Iraqi accent, and he also, because all that socializing happened at the pub. My dad was a devout Muslim, doesn't drink, doesn't want to go to the pub. He says, I can never get to the levels of management. And alhamdulillah, he did really well. Thank God he did well in his work and he enjoyed it. But I still remember these kinds of things are the things that influenced me and made me think, hmm, I'm not sure if I want that corporate life.
0: So when when you say that, you you know most people will take things like your dad's unable to socialize at the pub and say that's a disadvantage or you saying i cannot fit within the corporate world and think that this is a disadvantage and and i what i think is refreshingly not surprising but sort of like yeah epiphany like as you go like yeah yeah it is a disadvantage if you want it to be a corporate employee but it's a major advantage if you're not supposed to be, right? And I think The Unfair Advantage, your book, is entirely about that, entirely about the idea that based on how you define your success, you'll find that you have all that you need to succeed. And based on what you have to succeed, you can define a success that's very different than Oprah, but very, very valuable and impactful for you and your life.
1: Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. So the book is broken down into three parts. Part one is life is unfair. Understand that. how life yeah. is unfair. Let's accept that. Accept that. Part two is audit your unfair advantage. So it's a framework that we've developed the different categories of unfair advantages. Yeah. So you can self reflect and have a think about what you're unfair advantages are and then part three of the book is about how to start any new project such as a startup like a business startup and that was kind of what we had in mind at first but we've had people start charities we've had people start projects within their work like entrepreneurship. we've had people talk about it applying in their careers and it was just a quick start guide to get people started in the right direction because I'm a big believer that you can really because I fell into that trap myself you can really bog yourself down with theoretical information And really, you just need enough to get started and then you'll learn as you go. And learning, I'm a big fan of just-in-time learning. So that that was essentially the philosophy of the book. It's like, look, it's not just about hard work and grit and perseverance, as all these other books are telling you. And it's not all luck either. You know, you have some control. It's somewhere in the middle. It's based on not just hard work. It's based on working smart. It's not just working hard, it's working smart. And working smart means leveraging your unfair advantages. But first you have to discover what yours are.
0: Yeah. So, so I want to come to this in a second, but I want to repeat the sentence that you said. It's not all about grit and hard work and being grumpy and killing yourself and stressing yourself out, like all those business books and self help books are telling us. Okay. Which I have to admit, I, you know, is something that really, really gets me. Because if I look back at my story of success and I rarely ever want to talk about my corporate life, but I ended up being chief business officer of Google X, in my view, this is the top job on the planet, right? This is, there is no better job than this. And and I think the reality is I got there not because of grit at all, not because of perseverance at all. It was because of avoiding the things that I didn't enjoy the things that I wasn't good at, that, you know, the idea of me trying really hard to say, hey, I'm never, and it was my wise, wise, wise ex-wife, we were married then, when there was a day when I went to her and I said, look, my best friend, who was also my colleague at work, is the funniest guy on earth. He's so funny. He's so lovable. Like you can't but hug him every time you see him, right? And he basically and I started almost the same time at Microsoft, and he entertained very well. So he took clients out for dinners and parties. He took his boss and boss's boss and boss's boss's boss to out to dinners and parties, and they loved him. They just loved him. He was a fun, fun, fun person. And so I went to my ex at that time, and I said, baby, I'm going to have to be late evenings because I have to take my superiors out to entertain them too if I am to have a career. In this company and she told me well of course habibi i support you 100 percent do what you think is right but you'll be mediocre at it at best i remember vividly and, and 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 we spoke english we spoke english in that conversation so these were her exact words she said you'll be mediocre at it at best Okay, you'll never be like Khaled, Khaled is fun. He is made to entertain, right? You will go there and you'll talk to them about mathematics and physics, and that's not gonna entertain a lot of people. I'd rather you sleep early, wake up early, and continue to grow your business 29% year over year. Right? And the truth of the matter is that's what I did. So I basically took it, you know, immediately, and I just focused on growing my business. So I wasn't the most entertaining employee, but nobody could give up on 29% growth year over year. So they were very happy to keep growing my career because otherwise the business wouldn't grow. You know, so 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 she, in a funny way, she said, you know, when they go and have fun in those parties, they'll be doing that because you grow their business. So, you know, so keep it that way. So when you talk about grit and perseverance and so on, It's really not. It's not going out to the places that are difficult and fighting it out. It's being selective that needs to be our
1: choice, right? Exactly. It's all about being strategic. One thing that I learned, see, because I was quite, I, I used to read a lot of books when I was younger. And then I, you know, I started my own business. I started to have clients. Some of these clients became like mentors to me. They were like very successful business people. And one thing that was interesting is I would observe what they used to do and they used to some of them used to break every rule in the business book and they used to succeed anyway and that used to make me think ah interesting and this applies to every area of life you do not need to be perfect to be successful you do not need to be optimal I started to get to know CEOs of 300 plus people companies I started to get to know um, serial entrepreneurs startup founders i started to get to know people who are successful at public speaking who've won awards who've written books who've you know amazing thinkers successful in lots of different areas sports people and they don't necessarily do everything right yeah that was fascinating they just need to be good where it's like rather than being like sort of you know if you look at statistics like in video games and each player has different statistics for different areas like attack power defense power whatever like different areas of your life it, you don't need to bring them all up Yeah. you can be really good at certain things and then delegate or work with people that will balance you out for the other things yeah and that was like a eye-opener for me it was like whoa that seems it almost feels like cheating because at school you have to do everything yourself you can't get any help you can't look something up you can't copy something oh no that's copying that's no In the real world everyone's inspired by everyone's everyone's copying everyone everyone's getting ideas from everyone everyone's collaborating working together it's fascinating how you can really focus on what you're good at instead of what you're not stephen
0: bartlett says this very very well in his book happy sexy millionaire where he basically says and i agree by the way you can be very, very 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 good at one thing right or a couple of things But that wouldn't make you the best contributor. The top contributors to our world are those who are good at a configuration of different things, you know, that mixed together make them very unique. Right. So basically, you're not the best at any of them at all, but there is no one else that is good at those seven things at the same time in your environment. And so you're the best at all seven combined, but not the best at at any of them. I want to go back to your first part of the book and let's depress people a little bit. I know you don't mean it to be depressive, but let's depress people a little bit first before we cheer them up. So, life is unfair. And I think I think that's that can extend to deep deep realities like, you know, you growing up in the middle of two wars. That's very unfair,
1: right? So, what does that mean? Yeah, it's like one thing that I love is the feedback that we get is what you're saying is so obvious but nobody said it that way and i love that kind of because i used to love books that were like that so when i as a reader of books i used to love it when somebody could articulate something which i have a vague sense of like we all know this we all know life is not fair. we all know that actually success is based on unfair advantages actually we all know this this is like nobody goes no no that's not can't be true nobody's reacted like that but they're like oh interesting tell me more nobody's explained it this way so life is unfair we all know this look anything can happen in your life you can grow up in a war-torn country you can grow up in poverty you can grow up with a lot of conflict in your family you can grow up with health issues you can grow up with a, a loved one with health issues that you have to be the caretaker of i'll share with you one story because we were talking about my father and I remember he was teaching at a university, I think during the war in Iraq, and there was one student who had very terrible attendance, terrible attendance, just wasn't bringing in the assignments. My father told him, what's the matter? Why are you not doing the work assigned to you? And he said, well, actually, I'm from Halabja. He's a Kurdish man from from the town of Halabja in the north of Iraq. This town is well known for a chemical attack, Saddam gassed you know when they say Saddam gassed the Kurds Saddam had a chemical bomb go off in this Kurdish town of Halabja this guy's whole family were ill or wiped out or god knows what terrible tragedies and he first my dad was thinking this guy's just not putting in the effort and then when he found out the full story ah I see what happened there And we can look right now where it wasn't long ago when the crisis is still ongoing in Turkey and Syria with an earthquake. Things like that are not fair. I went to the Philippines. I was traveling around Southeast Asia. My business was running itself. I did a lot of exploring and traveling, which was really fun. I remember I was staying in a very posh part of the in Manila, the capital of the Philippines, where there weren't really any homeless people, any beggars. I, I guess they clean up the area. I don't know. But there were kids playing barefoot in the street. In the UK, that's like, people are sceptical. Like There are social safety nets in the UK, in general. Of course, there are people that fall through the gaps. But in general, they say, they always, for example, in the London Underground, don't give people who are begging because you'll only encourage that to happen more. And there are other ways that they can get welfare and social security and support. There are these systems in place. But I forgot that I was young, I was travelling. And so what we're used to is if there are, people begging then usually there somebody set them up to do so or they're doing this almost as a bit of a hustle that's a generalization but that's how I felt at the time now these kids they came up to me and they seemed like they might be begging they were playing earlier and it kind of it, it broke my heart a little bit especially because I realized what she was doing she was pointing at this bottle of water I had with a little bit of water left and that's what she wanted from me she wasn't asking for money she just wanted this water and I was like in tears, I, I was emptying my pockets of everything I had and I was giving it to these children because I realized what kind of childhood is that? Like, how much poverty are they going through? How difficult must that life be that they, they might be thirsty? Now, I don't know if, how bad it was. I don't know any details, but it's just moments like that in life. And that's why I guess travel is great because it can give you perspective. You know, I talk about this in my TED talk whereby I was like proud of myself. I did this, I had this ego around. I did this I set up this business it was successful I'm making a great passive income I'm able to to invest in some property invest in some companies and look I'm not even working right now this is the middle of the week and I'm in Indonesia and I'm just traveling around and I'm doing all this and I started to develop this idea because I wanted to prove to people that told me that can't be done that making a passive income business you can't make a business that runs itself that but I wanted to prove that it was possible because i did some due diligence it felt like it can make sense i can have my team take care of my clients and that's what was happening so i realized in that moment have i done this myself is there such a thing as self-made man or woman or do we have so much to thank Are oh, there so many factors and variables that are not in our control and therefore it's unfair that's why i talk about unfair advantages life is unfair we all know this there are lots of things that come to people easily there are lots of opportunities that come to people easily trump said i got a small loan of one million dollars from my father a small loan in the 70s it's like 10 million now and this is the kind of world that we all live in and grow up in and everyone knows that this is the case so life isn't fair it's not just gonna give you what you put in there is an aspect of that but that's not the full story but then this is very
0: depressing Hassan, because i think so many people would just switch off now and go Like, you know, I have no hope,
1: right? No, but so the, the, the point is that life isn't fair, but here's the good news. We all have unfair advantages. We all have it. No matter how bad you think your situation is, you have an unfair advantage somewhere. We all have a unique set of unfair advantages. And the kicker, the real key, is that what seems like a disadvantage can be turned into an advantage. If you just have the right mindset, if you just have the right goal, you can turn that disadvantage into your strength it's this is the incredible thing it's like alchemy you can turn a weakness into a strength and a classic example i think this example is oprah winfrey we mentioned her earlier let's use her as an example she's a case study in the book one of the most famous women in the world incredibly incredibly influential apparently that the obama election was won as a part because of the influence of oprah winfrey in the united states A self-made, said the self-made thing, black woman in the US, African-American, billionaire. And not just that, the emotional impact she's had, you know, is incredible. And where did she grow up? She grew up in 1950s rural Mississippi. So in the South, where there was much more racism, much more problems. Super poor. She tells the story of her grandmother washing clothes by boiling water and stirring it with a stick. And she says, strangely, from those days, she was like four years old. She used to think, I'm not going to live like this. Something inside her told her that she's not going to live like this. And she used and she went through abuse. She had so much discrimination. There was a story that her mother used to let her sleep outside while her, other, her sister used to sleep inside. Her mother was a maid to rich white families. And the reason was because of her complexion. She had darker skin color than her sister. The sister was more favored and she was allowed inside the house. It's heartbreaking, though. If you did listen to her story, she was sexually abused. She was, it's awful things. She was pregnant when she was a teenager and then she lost the baby. It's just so sad. It's so sad. She goes from father to her mother to her grandmother. But all that pain, all that terrible trauma that she went through, look at how emotionally intelligent she became. Look at how compassionate and empathetic she became. And that was. The main, if I was to look at and analyze the success of her show, which was running for like 20 years or however long it was, and then she had her own network, is the compassion she had for her guests, for her audience, the way that she could connect with people. She was actually a newsreader at first, but because she used to get so emotional during the stories, she had to quit that and do something else (laughs) and became a chat, you know, (laughs) did the chat show. So something so terrible, even something so awful as this terrible, poor racism abuse childhood somehow became a strength for her and so that's just one example but they're right.
0: but you know again the modern world will sell this to you as grit as oprah went out in the world and tried really hard and she worked and then she got up after being abused and so on yes there is that but you know if she had been a news reader uh, she wouldn't have gone as far as oprah is the point that we're trying to highlight here right
1: Exactly right, yeah. She was also, another unfair advantage is that she was a child genius. She was actually a prodigy. She used to give lectures to churches, whole church congregations at the age of three. She used to memorize verses from the Bible and give full speeches. And she was known as this child speaker. She could read and write at an incredibly young age. She had the support of her father and her grandmother who he used to take her to go and speak and used to get buy books for her. So even amidst that horrible childhood, you could see glimmers of little advantages that she had and that's the thing we all if we stop and think we can find little glimmers of things as bleak as it might be if you're listening to this i'm sure you can find things to be grateful for i'm sure you can find advantages that you can use we'll have our own unique story and often our advantages come from that that background and that story so it's not just the i mean the reason i was highlighting that is it's not she could have the grit and perseverance and vision and success she could have gone into i don't know like the investment banking, <laughs> consulting, you know, she could have had a, a corporate job. It's because she had this gift. There are gifts out there. There is such a thing as talent. That's part of the unfairness. But we also can all develop something. We can all have something in us where she, it comes easier to us than it comes to others. We all have something. It took me a long time to figure out what mine is, but we all have something. It took me a long, until I was almost 30. I didn't realize that communication was my strength. I didn't realize that at all. I had no idea. I thought I was a I was science guy, you know? I was really good at science. I was going to become a doctor, classic, you know, Arab background. My parents got me a, a birthday cake when I was one of a doctor cake. Like, Hassan yeah. is going to be a doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so...
0: Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure everyone is very ashamed that you're a best-selling author, so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, they're, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. My yeah. parents are are so so supportive and, and amazing. But just to show that you never know what it might be. And it takes time, that self-discovery, to figure out what your unfair advantages are. And, when, and right now, we're only talking about the inner unfair advantages, the strengths. We also in- include circumstances. Mm. And I think not enough books or people or gurus, they don't talk about that. They just talk about talents and focus on your strength, which is good advice. But what about your circumstances? What about who you know? What about where you are? What about what you've learned? What your experiences and expertise and circumstances are?
0: So let's go there, Hassan. So you you talk about the audit of your advantages, right? So internal and external. Let's start with internal. So what are you had that framework basically? Yes, we have a
1: framework. So first we say start with why. It's a classic, what's your objective? You know, Simon Sinek popularized the actual phrase start with why, but obviously that's been around since ancient times is have an objective. Have in Arab or Islamic culture we say have a niya, have an intention. What's your intention? nothing is accepted without an intention you have to have an objective so what's your why what's your vision what do you want you know it's like again we come back to that what is this about it's so short and so simple but it's so deep what do you want and so you have to start with what your actual um, motivation is what is it that you're trying to achieve because if you don't know what you want then any path will take you there you know it's that classic line from alice in wonderland she says which way do i go from here to the cheshire cat and that cat says to her well where do you want to go she says i don't care about where i go i just want to know which way to go he said then anyway is the right way Mm -hmm. any path and so we have to start with the vision the why the motivation what do you actually want maybe you want freedom and flexibility in your time maybe you want to spend more time with loved ones maybe you want to live a very adrenaline filled life maybe you want excitement and adventure and travel and extreme sports who knows? Maybe you just want that status of being middle management at a company. It doesn't. It's all good. There's no value judgments here. It's what do you want? Maybe you want to be a dentist. Maybe you want to be a singer. Maybe you want to dance. So you have to start with that. That's, that's the foundation. The next level is your personality type. Now, I don't really I don't really do personality type tests type things much, but I think it can be valuable. I don't really believe in the results very much. But I think it can be valuable because it makes you think. When you're doing like a Myers-Briggs thing, where the psycholo- psychologists don't even rate that one very much. They, they use the big five personality types, you know, extroversion, neuroticism, etc. But it doesn't matter. What matters is for you to reflect and also ask your, ask your loved ones, ask people you've lived with, ask people you've traveled with, ask people you've worked with. Get that insight about yourself. Know thyself. So first, understand your intention. Then understand your personality type. Then from there, you can start off with mindset factors. So the classic self development stuff, have a vision, have, pers- you know, have grit and perseverance, have resourcefulness, have lifelong learning as a mindset. Then we go to the Miles framework. The Miles framework. So these are all foundational things. The real thing about unfair advantages is this Miles framework. Miles is an acronym. M stands for money. Money is an unfair advantage. Whether people want to talk about it or not, it is there most companies businesses start with family and friends money what if you don't have rich family and friends no one yeah. talks about that no one wants to discuss that this is craziest to me no one wants to discuss or admit this then you have i intelligence and insight and intelligence isn't just book smart or iq it's also your emotional intelligence it's also your creativity insight that one's very powerful and we can come back to that one insight is do you have a unique insight into a problem to solve in the world do you have a unique insight into how you can connect with people that other people haven't connected with okay. l is for location and luck which is right place right time okay Are you in the right place at the right time people talk about that i was in the right place at the right time people with a bit of self-awareness a bit of humility they talk about how lucky they were and actually most successful people do talk about that whether it's false modesty or real (laughs) i think i think they're all pretty aware of how lucky they were in their lives so location i absolutely will tell you that yeah exactly and then you have education and expertise E is for education and expertise. Education can be formal learning, but ed- expertise can be what you build through experience, which is powerful. And that's how I learned marketing and all of and business and strategy and all that stuff. S is the most powerful one, it's the final one, is status. Status in a broad sense, how are you perceived? You know, they say don't judge a book by its cover. Oh, and that's because judging. everyone yeah. does that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because everyone, as a yeah. human nature, we judge things by how they appear. Not just aesthetically, how they sound, how they walk, how they talk, what credentials they have. People who start companies, they often like ex-Facebook employee, ex-Google did this, ex-McKinsey, ex-Goldman Sachs, have started a new startup. People care about status, how many followers you have, how you come across, how who you know, friends in high places, your network. If I say I was having dinner the other day with Elon Musk, and it's like, oh, people will look at me different. It'll raise my status, so your network. And also, finally, your inner status. So these are within status. Your inner status is how you view yourself, your self-perception. That -hmm. goes back to your self-esteem. That goes back to your confidence. How you talk to yourself, the the voice inside your head. Yeah. And that's the miles framework. it's money, intelligence and insight, location and luck, education and expertise, and status. Those are the five categories of unfair advantages.
0: Do you think there is anyone in the world that has none of those at all?
1: No, I don't think so. Because, for example, for status, you can't even really quantify. Some things you can. You can quantify how many social media followers somebody has. Or you can quantify maybe a socioeconomic status. But you can't really quantify your status as a a woman who has had three kids, who is also interested in, give me something like, interested in... Medicine cooking, Yeah. so status can be your subculture. Status can be that you're poor, and therefore you can have an insight. This is where we go into the double-edged sword. So when you say, "Is there anybody without any of these?" Maybe you can be low on a lot of them, but the reality is that what can be a what can seem like a disadvantage can be turned into an advantage. So another quick example of that: having little money makes you more resourceful. Correct. Very simple, makes you more creative, makes you much more creative. I remember people who wanted to start companies who had a lot of funding and they were pitching us to try to raise funding for their startups. They often, they how are you going to reach customers? Oh, Facebook ads, Google ads, because yeah. they have a budget. They have money to spend. They're not creative. And that applies to anything necessity is the mother of invention. So having little will make you more resourceful and make you more creative. You'll also have insights. Let's say you're coming from a very poor working class background. You will have an insight into how poor working class people think, what they want, what you can sell them, what you can give them, how you can serve them, how you can connect with them, how you can make them laugh. These are powerful insights, and insight is a big, big unfair advantage. And that's how you can turn what seems negative into a positive.
0: So I, I learned about Miles when we chatted the first time, but also I watched this very clever video about it. and And the idea here is that our negativity bias of our brain is constantly attempting to tell you what's wrong with you, right? So being poor is that's the reason why I'm not going to succeed. Being not very good looking, uh, you know, is the reason why I'm not going to be an internet influencer or whatever that is, right? So you take each and every one of those. And, you know, I I jokingly always talk about this on my Instagram account. The fact that, you know, my bum is not very attractive to shake. So I'm not going to ever get a million followers. You can look at that as a disadvantage, or you can actually say, but my voice seems to be liked. uh, So I can start a podcast and I can get the followers because of that, or my content seems to be liked. So maybe I can get people to be interested in what I provide bef- because of that but the brain tends to first start with why not what is wrong with me
1: not what's right with me yeah and it's that comparison that we do isn't it yeah. you can see that TikTok star <laughs> with the pretty face and the nice bum <laughs> and attracting millions of followers immediately and thinking oh my god like so lucky and yeah. that's where it comes from There's this attitude, especially I think it's common uh, in the UK, especially compared to America. You know, the US versus the UK culture. UK culture is a bit more stratified, a bit there's more of a class divide. It's an older culture. You know, there's like old landowners from like a thousand years ago, whereas America is more of a um, a more recent country, and they have this more of a growth mindset, which to the detriment sometimes. And we have a passage in the book actually, a bit of a side note, but one thing that was interesting is. In olden times, they used to call poor people that they'd see as unfortunates. That's Mm. how they would refer to them, Mm. the unfortunates. But the extreme kind of consumerist, capitalist, status-driven American culture, again, stereotyping it, but I'm saying the extreme version of it, Mm. might unkindly refer to these poor people as losers. And that's the double edge, that's the flip side of the coin of having too much of a, you can do it, let's just work hard, you're responsible for your own life. The problem with that, with believing that you manifested everything in your life, that's kind of a toxic belief. Because if you believe that everyone manifests what happens to them, then there can be a victim blaming culture. You can say, poor people are poor because that's how they manifested People who've gone through tragedies, they somehow manifested this. This is a horrible, horrible mindset. And it's just not true because they're trying to make order out of chaos. There is a certain level of chaos in life and we have to embrace that. And anyway, I I moved on to that tangent because of that difference. But I think there's this aspect to this idea of what can I compare myself against versus what can I be content with? Yeah, there has to be a level of in Arabic we we'll call it There's like a contentment. There's like a kind. I'm content with what I have, and there's yeah. There's I, a I think that
0: the tri- the trick is: can I compare myself to? The best of my abilities, because the best of my abilities is the best that I can ever do, right? And instead of comparing myself to another who's doing something better than me, if I know my abilities, then I could probably do something better than them. I think there is, you know, an implicit assumption that we should make explicit here so that our listeners can rest with this, which is nobody's perfect at everything right? So by by definition, if you have a lot of money, you're likely going to be less resourceful, or if you have a very rich father, he's likely going to be annoying like hell, right? And so on. So, So, you know, and I've seen that working with second generation family businesses and so on, that yes, the self-made father is also very difficult with his kids, just like he is with his business, right? So by understanding that, I think It matters for everyone to say to themselves if I am deficient in something or if I'm lacking in something not deficient then basically that means there must be something else that I am abundant in and that other thing if you can switch your mind to looking for it rather than complaining about what's lacking. That's when doors start to open. And, you know, I love your approach to saying, and by the way, it is not about perseverance because you can persevere for the rest of your life in a field that requires you to have skills that you're lacking in, like going out and entertaining in my story, right? And that will not get you far. You're going to be mediocre at it at best. You'd be better off to find things that actually are your natural skills, your unfair advantages, and depend on those. Hassan, so you coach Ali, for example, my, my dear friend Ari Abdel, and you coach lots of internet influentials. And I find that this is a world where there are advantages that cannot be attained. If you're not naturally talented at certain things, you're going to not be an internet influential, even if you spend hours and hours and, you know, post millions and millions of videos. What's your biggest learning for a generation of youngsters that are so crazy about that idea of, I am going to be an internet influencer. Have you ever told anyone that's not for you? Mm, That's a good
1: question. No, I haven't told anyone that's not for you. So I work with, uh, as you say, influencers, these YouTubers, TikTokers, they're they're, um, these content creators online. Usually the ones that seek me out and hire me although i actually give a lot of consultations pro bono because i just love talking to people and i think it's also it's also a selfish reason i build insights i get the unfair advantage of insight by talking to people so i do give time so for the ones who hire me they usually have a, a business already so so either they have another business separate to the youtube world and they're thinking of going into youtube and that's an area that can come about so i've and i also just. Uh, coach uh, startup founders as well this is the classic classic thing For those i think that they can try different things so often i'll nudge them to trying okay you don't like this style of video do you want to try doing a fully scripted one rather than trying to come up with what to say on the fly just from some bullet points or do you want to try doing a voiceover over like some animation instead Well, do you want to try a podcast instead? Maybe you'll be better with conversational. You'll feel more comfortable. Or maybe we should do short form videos where they can be highly produced, highly edited vertical videos for TikTok or YouTube shorts, et cetera. So there's so many different things to try. I don't think that there is anybody who's such a bad case that you just say, just give up. It's not like singing and you're either kind of, kind of either talented or not. Of course you can learn as well some skills, but I feel like it's more obvious when someone is like, Got a nice voice and you've got something to work with it, or they don't. I think with content creation, I think there's so many different ways of doing it. So there can be an angle in this. There can be some way that they can find connect with an audience. And sometimes they just want to do the writing side of it. And it can be a different person doing the voiceover. Like there's so many different models. So I don't think there's like you either have it or you don't. It's a bit like the question is an entrepreneur born or made? It's kind of similar. And i think it's uh, or is a leader or a good parent or something like this is it like a na- nature or nurture i think there's always going to be a lot of things that you can influence and a lot of different tactics you can take so no i've never found myself telling somebody this just isn't for you i think yeah. most of the time people will give up before then and they just won't do enough people usually give up too early it's very rarely the case that somebody's persevering with something that just isn't working
0: I was hoping you would tell me that you did, so that you can actually tell me to give up on it, and that <laughs> it would, would, would free no, up. Please two do hours not give up day. on it,
1: because I love your content, and I think you're a fantastic man. content creator. So that's the truth. Oh man,
0: man, it's it's just a full time job, really, and I I find that whether it's my unfair advantage or not, so I, I actually don't use anyone to create anything for on social media for me. I mean, other, of course, than the promotions of the slow-mo uh, podcasts. But otherwise, my content is created by me because otherwise I feel it's very unauthentic. It's like, seriously? You know, it just just doesn't make any sense for me to, to fake something like that. And, you know, all of the messages that I respond to, to DMs that I receive are me. And, you know, uh, I respond to all the comments myself. And in a very interesting way, I think that's probably an advantage because again, believe it or not, it's part of our culture. You know, if you're greeted by someone by in our culture, you have to greet them back better. And so it's so ingrained with us within us that, you know, I, I can't receive a message from someone. And some sometimes people send me a message and they go like, I can't believe you answered back. You know, why would you do that? You're this famous person. And I'm like, because you said hi you know it's like is it it's very rude that you say hi and i don't say hi back but you know in an interesting way after a while you start to realize that this is an unfair advantage against my other skills and that's something that i really wanted to to talk to you about so so the reality is that in a world where there is an abundance of responsibilities an abundance of success possibilities I think it's becoming more and more wise for, for, for many people to actually drop things to focus on others. So in your part three of the book, you talk about how do we move from there? How do we move from auditing our advantages to actually becoming successful? Can, can you take us very quickly through that process?
1: Yeah. I think starting a project again, you have to have or leveraging your unfair advantages. Okay, now you've discovered what they are. And and, and this, again, it's a journey, but maybe you have a feeling, ah, oh, maybe I'm kind of stronger, but where I'm located is actually a really good hub for what I want to do. It's actually a good media hub, and maybe I want to get into media. Or maybe it's it's great for yoga. It's, people use it as a yoga retreat. So maybe I can actually do more of that. So that's the kind of you have this idea now of where you're at. But how do you leverage that? Well, first of all, again, go back to what your objective is. What are you actually trying to do? Is it that you're trying to just start a hobby project? Is it that you're trying to start a business and you want to quit your full-time job? Is it that you're trying to get back to work after having children and now thinking what to do next? That's the first step. The second step from there, I find this very useful, is the idea. So this is like, if you go to business school, they tell you, okay, ideation, what's the idea? And that you can think of it that way. I like to think of it as who are you going to serve? Mm. Who is this for? Who is your target audience or your target customers or your target, you know, whatever, like people you're helping or your clients? Start with who. People often struggle with an idea. Like, what exactly is the idea? They might think it's just a hobby that they want to start to monetize. And really, that's not the right approach. The right approach is to think, how can I serve? Who can I serve? Mm -hmm. And often a very good one, because you have an unfair advantage of insight into it, is a younger version of yourself. If you're serving a younger version of yourself, or, or even a current version of yourself, like a problem you're facing, and you want to, let's say, invent or create something to solve that problem, yeah. that is a very, very powerful place to start. Mm-hmm. And I often like to think of things as transformative, you know, in the ideal sense, like if you create, uh, an, I, mean, I think your books, for example, Mo, they're transformative, they're transformational. So what does that exactly mean? It means it takes somebody from A to B. It takes them on a journey. So I love to tell my clients my customers my students I do some I've done some online courses what is the journey you want to take people on what's the a to b first of all let's define a okay who is it okay it's um it's let's say third culture kids they call that third culture kids like immigrant children in the west who have moved around and they their parents are one culture they live in the west is a different culture okay okay that's who i'm targeting maybe it's more specific maybe it's like chinese second generation immigrants in the uk maybe it's something that specific or maybe it's like asian second generation in their 20s who are thinking about a more fulfilling career hmm. it could be along those lines i know because i went through that okay let me tell them what i wish i'd known Let me teach them, or let me take them, let me write a guidebook for them, or let me create a product for them, or maybe I can create a database of different careers, and maybe it's like a tool or a software. It doesn't matter what the product or service is. Just think about what the transformation is. Who am I targeting? What are their fears and frustrations? How I like to think of it, what are the fears and frustrations? And then for that's A, and then B is the end result that they want, not that you want for them. That they want, which is a very key distinction. You have to put yourself in their shoes. This is where empathy comes in, emotional intelligence. What in their words is the problem? And what in their words is the Success. desired outcome? Yeah, absolutely, exactly. And that's B. And let's just very roughly say, solve for happy is about finding happiness. And we could probably break it down, and I'm sure you can break it down in much more further specific language than that and you know that okay this is for that i'm helping people get from a to b so that's often a new project is a a way to think of it and is isn't taught enough is how can i serve okay how can i make that sustainable financially maybe it's to make profits and to make a lifestyle or maybe it's to make just to keep it running these are the ways to view this so you start off with that and also who can i work with I'm a very big fan of having um, partners in a project, in a business, because it's so difficult doing something alone. A solo founder for you know, a startup, a project, a business, so lonely, so difficult. I did it, and it was tough, and I was only able to do it because I had an accountability buddy who was doing his own business, and we would meet up and hold each other accountable and talk through and have a sounding board. It's tough. Having somebody to balance out where your weaknesses are and the unfair advantages, it's amazing it's incredible it's like think of like steve jobs with uh wozniak steve yeah. jobs was the visionary he was the communicator and wozniak was the technology he was the tech guy he was the nerdy coder he didn't want to talk to people he wanted to just do it think yeah. about whatsapp whatsapp the founder of whatsapp is yan Coom, ukrainian immigrant to the us he was the coder he cared about like having messages go through he cared about infrastructure he cared about speed he cared about having it cross-platform he cared about all these nerdy things he co-founded it with brian acton who helped him raise funding who helped him pitch the idea who helped him to do that extrovert side of it so Mm -hmm. that self-awareness that he had of, ah, i'm not really good at this side of it let me work with somebody else and i think that applies in every space we have to think about who can help and i'm really a believer in having partners or co-founders and it's not easy to find i forget the question how do i find a co-founder for my business how do i find a, a partner for my new project my new charity and really it's like how do i find a husband or a wife it's 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 hard you have to have trust you have to have shared values you have to be able to put up with them they have to not get on your nerves you're going to be spending so much time with them so it's not easy but it's fun and you can have test projects etc but those are the kinds of things that we cover in the startup quick start guide is who are you serving? What is it for? How can you make it successful? How can you use timing? Is there a trend that you're using? Is there something that you can use that maybe the timing will be a bit better? Use your unfair advantages. That's yeah. the key. The key is to be aware of what you have and use those and don't try and do something that's way outside of where you like unless you can leverage other people. Yeah. And that's an unfair advantage in and of itself.
0: I have to say what you just said is fascinating because in a very simple way, every time anyone pitched any idea to me, whether that's a business or I want to change the world or I want to teach children or I want to whatever, right? People have that tendency to focus on the what. If I built a better photo sharing app, I can compete with Instagram. Or if I had a six pack, then I'm going to attract the right partner okay when in reality you have not even mentioned the what in this conversation so you started with understand yourself understand your unfair advantage you started with the why why am i doing this what do i want to do right then my unfair advantage then you went into who am i serving what is it that they're looking for what ways can i deliver on that and then back to my unfair advantages of how can my unfair advantage serve that path and then who do i partner with so interesting because in all honesty, I write that way. Every product that I've seen us create at Google you know, is created that way. It's the product, the final idea itself is actually the outcome of all of this. And, so, and then suddenly, when you do all of this, the idea that comes out is an idea that's actually fit Not only for the current market, for your target market, for your skills, for your resources, for everything that you have, not just, you know, one of a million possible ideas that is a dream that can succeed, but will not succeed for you because you've not done that legwork, if you want, of trying to find out what it is exactly that fits with you, your skills, your your environment, your targets, and so on. That's really fascinating. I find that really valuable.
1: Thank you, Mo. Yeah, and I'm glad you picked up on that. The, not about the what, because I get the same thing. It's like, I'm doing a cross-platform, crypto, like, okay, for what? They just yeah. throw the keywords, AI-driven, cross-plat, blockchain, but what is it for? Who are you serving? What problem are you solving? I like mm-hmm. to think of it as problems like, to solve as well. There's a nice way to to view things in the sense of like, It's just a way to add value i like to view success as how much value can you add how much value can you put out there into the world so interesting i'm 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 revisiting in my head my next book
0: after next uh, finding love which is about love and romance and you're spot on because i'm basically saying yeah what are you doing i'm going dating like is that going to work if you don't even know yourself if you don't even know what you're looking for if you don't even know who you're you're looking for if you don't know who can support you through that journey, what you're going to talk to them about, are they going to give you sound advice? It's the infrastructure of of what you, you know everything around that idea that finally is lived in a date, okay you didn't do any of that work and then you're going on a date and you're eventually going to end up with someone that you're going to break up with in six weeks time. And it's just because you haven't actually done the reflection. It's quite interesting the way you look at it. Hassan, I don't want to take too too much of your time. It's been a a very, very, very um, enlightening way of looking at things. I want to talk to you as a last question about happiness, because I know that you've been, working on that for a lot of your clients as well. So if I sa- ask the simple question, what's your secret to happiness? What would that be?
1: Mm. I really believe that the secret to happiness is gratitude. Really? I really believe that gratitude. It's magical. It's really it's like a miracle in how it changes your psychology in how it changes your outlook in how it changes that you can see what you have going for you rather than what you don't you can see how much blessings you've got it's it's really the key to happiness is gratitude I really truly believe that so if we can be content if we can be but content see the thing is I I work with a lot of high achievers and and I'm, I'm an ambitious person myself right and this is just my background and when I think of contentment it almost scares me because it's like well does that mean that I won't Work hard? Does that mean I, then I won't make more money? Then does that mean I won't ri- raise my status further and further? And no, it doesn't. That's the yin and the yang. I think that we have to balance self acceptance with self improvement at the same time. That's the yin and yang. If we can have both of those and be happy on our journey while we strive, I, I do believe that we're not made to just uh, sit on the park bench and just think. I don't think most of us are like that. I think most of us, and especially younger people, you have to do things in the world. That kind of labor, you know, like efforts can be fulfilling. But I think it can't be fulfilling if you think you'll enjoy it when you reach a certain point, because that goalpost will keep moving. So I think the key is to be happy on the journey and to be grateful for what you've got. I think that's, to me, that's the key to happiness.
0: Yeah, and I think what we said today, Hassan, is that not only can we be grateful for what we've got, but we can see serious, unfair advantages that we have because of what we've got, including the harshness or the hardship that we went through, including the seeming disadvantages that we have in our life. Not only can we accept them, we can be grateful for them, and then we can celebrate them and make them work for us. This has been a joyful conversation as always. I'm very, very grateful for your time, for that, what you shared for us. Thank you so much, Hassan.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: And for all of our listeners, I I recommend the Unfair Advantage. I think it's a wonderful read. There's the Unfair Academy, uh, which is part of Hassan's work uh, to help you learn about the concepts and the frameworks and the models. But at the end of it all, I think what we wanted to tell you today is, yeah, Life is unfair, and that's a wonderful thing. It truly is. It truly is what makes us unique. And because we are unique, we can achieve different things in life. If all of us dream to be scoring the World Cup's goal, I think a lot, many, 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 many of us will be disappointed. But if all of us wanted to score the goal that we are capable of scoring, I think that would create a world where there are more goals and more successes for everyone. I enjoyed this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. And I hope that you take a little bit of time to think about this because when we sometimes talk about reflecting on life in general, an idea of what your unfair advantages are is a very, very, very good place to start. Thank you all so much for giving me the platform to talk to so many wonderful people and ponder so many interesting ideas. If you've enjoyed this, share it with others, rate the podcast five stars, like it on YouTube, tell the whole world about it, do the stuff that you guys do on social media, which I suck at one of my unfair advantages, which makes me genuine at it just because I suck at pretending. So that's, I believe, an unfair advantage. I remind you that life is getting busier and busier in a difficult year. And so remember your self-balance, as Hassan said, self-acceptance with self-improvement. And give yourself a tiny bit of time to slow down because it really, really does not matter how much you have on your plate today. There's always a tiny bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.